So today we are looking at Psalm 133. So if you'd like to find it in your Bibles. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life for evermore. Considering this is only three verses long, there is a rich depth and a beautiful feast for the senses found within it, all focused around this idea of unity. Unity in our world seems like a far-off utopia compared with the disunity which is shaping our world. The polarisation which we have experienced over the last years has been deepened and sharpened by the likes of Brexit, Trump and now Boris. We've just heard this morning of the mass shootings in America. These seated, deep-seated areas of hate. And I don't know whether it is that we are more disunified than ever, or simply that there are new outlets for views which previously would have been kept silent. Or that in our globalised world, the cacophony of media and social media has made the issues just much more stark. Yet what I do know is that the world feels like it is more hopeless and depressing place in the political climate that we find ourselves in. Therefore, there is a need for this new prophetic voice of the church to rise up, a new narrative which is displayed within the people of God, which will provide both a tonic to the world's problems, and yet more importantly, it will ultimately display the person of Jesus to the world. So through looking at this psalm, we're going to explore both the beauty of unity, and then we'll look at the challenge of unity. This psalm is full of the beauty of unity. It uses two images to display it to us. The first image is of precious oil being poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. There's a poetry to this um, image which we can see in the way that is repeated, running down, running down, down. It's like this overflow, abundance, which is flowing down of the oil through Aaron. And for us to understand this as the Israelites would have done hearing these words, we need to look back at Exodus 30, where Moses is told by God to make an oil blend of spices including myrrh, cinnamon, calamus and cassia, mixed with olive oil to create a sacred anointing oil. It was used to anoint the tent of meeting, all the accessories around that, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all the utensils and the basin around that. And then more so than just um, anointing the physical things that were there, It was used to anoint Aaron and his sons, to consecrate them as priests, to serve in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And God was very strict with Moses, saying this is not to be used on anything else. 
It is set apart for worship, set apart for the priests, holy for God. So this was a rich oil full of expensive spices. But also in the psalm, it is rich in symbolism as being for consecration and being made holy. Then the picture David, the author of this psalm, paints um, in the psalm is of this oil being poured in abundance over Aaron, flowing down his beard and onto his collar. As Aaron was the high priest, his job was also to pass on this blessing of God onto other people. So the flow down onto his collar shows that this abundance is available for others too. Joining in together, it wasn't just the unity of the priest, but it was the unity of all the people gathered together through this oil. When I lived in Leeds before we moved to Bristol last summer, I was working for a church where we reached out to those and the language that we used who were battered and bruised by the storms of life. And we provided community and the hope of Jesus for them. These storms would often include homelessness, mental illness, addiction, bereavement, trauma and abuse. And yet we we gathered together as a community. And in our worship, we often used really tangible things to connect with God. Whether that was through communion, the physical eating of Jesus' body and blood, or the use of candles. We used to, at the beginning of every service, light a candle and say, Jesus is the light of the world. And so we could physically see that he was the light of the world through that candle. But one thing we often used was oil in prayer, Uh, whether it was for healing or um, we very often pray for people with mental health issues through anointing them with oil. And as I read this psalm, I feel like maybe we're a little bit stingy. We just get a little tiny bit on our finger and sign ourselves with the cross on our forehead as a symbol of God's anointing. And yet in this psalm, we have this rich picture of oil flowing down, almost like a shower, showering Aaron in this oil. Maybe next time when we anoint each other, we need to pour out the whole bottle. And so coming back to unity... David wants us to know that unity is part of our holiness. (coughs) It's part of us being set apart as the people of God and the rich abundance of that. The second image of unity we have is the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. To understand this image, we need to know a little about the geography of Israel and understand how it worked. Mount Hermon is in the north of the land of Israel. It's the largest mountain in the region and was climatically significant for the nation. As there's so little rain in the area, practically a desert, the way that crops would grow is through the dew that formed through Mount Hermon. The the largest of the mountain meant that lots of dew formed and it made the ground fertile. It was a green area around there. The other mountain mentioned is Mount Zion, which is much smaller, and yet it is considered one of the most holy places in Israel. And David says that unity is like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. So the abundance and the physical lusciousness of Hermon 
falling upon the holy mountain of Zion. I think David is also saying something here about the physical unity of the people of Israel, mentioning both a mountain in the northern region and in the southern region. We don't know the date of this psalm, but we do know that there were periods of peace in the beginning of David's reign. And then later there were periods of civil war and breakdown in the unity of Israel. And then when David's grandson Rehoboam became king, the whole kingdom split into two. Into the northern ten tribes, then known as Israel, and then the southern two tribes as Judah. And so David was probably deeply aware that if this psalm was written at a time of peace, then it was a rare and really beautiful thing to experience. Looking again back at the history before David, again there had been so much violence and so much disunity within the people of God. So from these two images of unity, we can see that when God's people live together in unity, it is holy, it brings abundance, and ultimately it brings God's blessing. It brings a beautiful harmony to the world. And yet also, for us today, it seems like an almost impossible challenge, to res- impossibility to achieve. So we're now going to look at our second point, the challenge of unity. Currently, the global church does not exactly look like these beautiful, abundant pictures of unity. Whether it's deep-seated theological differences, differences in worship styles or mission strategies, or it might just be a lack of acknowledgement that unity is important, the current situation feels rather bleak. Even within our own denominations, there are hurdles over the next few years to be jumped over in terms of our unity as the Church of England. And looking more globally, next year the Archbishop of Canterbury will gather the global leaders of the Anglican Church at the Lambeth Conference. And yet many are threatening not to attend due to their theological differences. And yet unity is a gift from God. And yet it feels like it's something that is just too difficult and something that needs a lot of hard work to get. I think there are two main reasons that unity feels like a challenge. Firstly, unity is abstract and tangibly difficult to see. Unity seems like it is too big for us to deal with, because ultimately it's not just a product of ourselves, but a product of all God's people. And so for unity to work properly, it requires everyone to pitch in. It requires me to make decisions which favour other people. It requires us as a church to deeply love all other areas of the church. It requires denominations to love other denominations. This is a big and an abstract task. The second reason I think unity is a challenge is because unity is derived from sin. The Church of England have recently produced some materials around several pastoral principles in which they want to address six pervading evils or six corporate sins which are causing a lack of unity within our church. These include prejudice, silence, ignorance, fear, 
hypocrisy and misuse of power. And so they're wanting us to facilitate conversations around these areas and seeing how as a church we can begin to acknowledge our prejudice, actually see what it is and where it is causing harm. How we can speak into silence. Where are the areas that we haven't been touching on? Where are the areas that people feel silenced? We need to address our ignorance. There will be things that we just aren't aware of in our culture and in the surrounding church. And how can we begin to address that? How can we cast out fear? Fear is such a driver in terms of our lack of unity, isn't it? Fear of the other can be so damaging. And yet perfect love casts out fear. Where can we admit our hypocrisy? Where are we saying one thing and yet acting in the opposite spirit? And finally, we need to pay attention to power. There will be people who are misusing power in churches around this country. And so how can we begin to pay attention to the way that power is used in a godly way? How can we begin to change that culture? I think this all can be summed up by knowing that the gift of unity to us is born when we have the individual and corporate humility to value others above ourselves And we do that through the power of grace given to us in Jesus. But also also where we acknowledge that there is sin, we need to repent. And I think often it is helpful to corporately repent. So I'm just going to pray now and pray that we would turn around from this lack of unity and that as a corporate body, we would say sorry for the things that we have done. You might like to close your eyes as we pray now. Jesus, we are sorry for the lack of unity in your church. We are sorry for when our sin leads to disunity. We are sorry that a lack of unity means that people aren't coming to know you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would um, help us to turn away from our sin and walk in the other direction. We pray that you would strengthen us so that we can love others deeply. We can love other denominations deeply. And ultimately that we would glorify you through our unity. Amen. The good thing about confession is that Jesus will forgive us when we confess our sins. And so we can be at peace knowing that. And now that we have repented of our lack of unity... Let's move to now to think of where we can work towards unity. I think the second aspect of the challenge of unity is for us to begin to challenge the systems and challenge the way that we do unity well. Jesus in John 17 says, 
beginning at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking to the he's talking to God about his disciples. I pray also for those that will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So Jesus here is praying to his father that we as the church, the people of God, would be one. Because through that, other people will get to know him. He is also hinting here that our main example of perfect unity is in the Trinity. Where God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit dwell in perfect unity. Which is then extended to us. The fullest pictures we get of unity I think are found at the bookends of the Bible. Before the fall in Genesis 2, we have this harmonious picture of the Garden of Eden, of God dwelling with his people in unity. And then in Revelation, the vision of this new heaven and the new earth where God dwells with his people and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. This is mirrored in the final verse of the psalm too, which says that the blessing of unity is eternal life. For there God bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So unity is both rewarded with eternal life, but it is also present in eternal life. So this idea of God dwelling with us, I think is so important for our unity. But that only happens when we believe and trust in Jesus. As Jesus died on the cross, he took the weight of our sin and shame. He defeated death and he made it possible for us to know and have an intimate relationship with God. And then we see as the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, there was an opportunity for God to dwell within each of us, to dwell in you and in me. For us to have a chance at knowing that gift of unity. The psalm says that eternal life is the blessing of unity. And Jesus also says in the John passage that it is through unity of God's people that the world will know him. So then they will also be invited into this eternal life. And so unity is absolutely vital for mission. Now, I'm no expert in war, but my guess is that when you have a unified army with common goals and acknowledgement of how the different parts work together, that you become much more efficient. I can imagine that during the Second World War, there was a deep need for the Allied forces to be unified, with the army, the navy and the RAF knowing their own tasks, and then all the other different countries which were pulled in needed to know what they were doing, working together to defeat the Nazis. It is the same for us in our spiritual warfare. 
when we come as a united front in the name, power and authority of Jesus, the enemy has no chance. One of the enemy's main tactics is division, because when the church is unified, it is an unstoppable force where people will see who Jesus is, just as Jesus prayed. An example of um, unity just not really working that well in mission is a couple of months ago, I was having lunch with a couple of friends and one of them is a nominal Catholic and over the years we've had quite a few conversations about church and Jesus and what that means. But um, if you asked her if she was a Christian, she would say, no, I'm a Catholic. And we were having lunch with this other friend who I've known for over 10 years and she's always shown very little interest in faith. She would always just giggle and find it a little bit awkward if we were talking about it. But recently her sister got ill and so her and her family went out to Rome to get some holy water. And I think they were had some faith that this would be work in healing her sister and so there's this maybe a mustard seed size amount of faith that my friend had had for her sister and so she then started asking some questions as we were having lunch together saying well to my other friend well you're a catholic what do you think and Millie, you're a christian and basically we got all caught up in this conversation about the differences between catholics and protestants when actually we could have been talking about the good news of Jesus and that how that unifies us. And maybe that was my own fault for not steering the conversation in the direction that could have been good news. But it also, it just felt a little bit like this was an area where a lack of unity had actually been bad for mission. But now a good story of unity working really well in mission. In Leeds, um, there was a charity called Unity in Poverty Action. And the guy who headed up the charity, he was amazing at gathering charities who were normally Christian charities working in areas of poverty action across the city and getting them to have conversations and sit down together to work out how they could work together. So I was often part of an addiction conversation. So we were talking together with other charities, um, one an addiction services, one a rehab, one a organisation that works with girls in the sex industry. We um, were able to have these great conversations about different tactics or different things that we used and we were seeing people come free of addiction. And that was an amazing thing of uniting people who perhaps wouldn't sit around a table together because they had different ideas and different methods and yet they saw fruit from it. Again, he um, began to gather all the people working with homeless people in the city. And the city, a couple of years ago, was deeply um, divided in how it was tackling homelessness. There was grassroots organisations trying to help and yet often were hindering things. There was the council who seemed um, like they were completely lacking in compassion. And then there were charities trying to do their best and um, raise money and 
none of them were talking to each other and working well together. And so this charity, Unity and Poverty Action, began to gather all the stakeholders, including those who were homeless as well, and began to forge the way forwards. And now, a couple of years on, there is now a homelessness charter in Leeds, which is allowing um, a united front to tackle the issue of homelessness within the city which is such good news. And it might not be a distinctly missional thing, but I think it is deeply within the heart of God to see that. Maybe not missional. I think it's not deeply evangelistic. It is deeply missional, and it is within the heart of God. Thinking biblically again, I want to look at the example of Pentecost, because I think this is a key example for us in seeing unity at work. It was a moment where the dwelling of God came on his people, which resulted in people being able to communicate with people from all around the known world through speaking in different tongues, different languages. And ultimately, it meant that Peter preached about who Jesus was and what he had done, and 3,000 people came to know Jesus that day. So to bring us back to where we started Our world is divided, and it is a place where I think people are crying out to know that Jesus is good news. And we have a task as the church to display the beauty of unity, the abundant, oil-flowing, dew-dripping beauty of unity. And it is through that that the world will know Jesus and be transformed by him. I said earlier that the prophetic voice of the church could be a tonic to the world's problems. And my prayer is today that through being one, we would become that.